Well, it's good to be back. Uh, Joan and, and I and Paul Snuffer just returned from Thailand yesterday. We got in yesterday uh, afternoon. It was a 20-some hour flight. It's kind of a blur uh, to me. And I think we got up at 4 this morning, so we're ready to roll. But by about the time of the second service, it's going to be about 10 o'clock at night uh, in uh, Thailand. So I'll be good for this service at least. And We'll, we'll see what happens in the, uh, in the second service. People have asked me, how do you feel uh, when uh, it's your last sermon? And I kind of feel the way I did with my first sermon. Whoops, lost, lost sound, is it? Uh, the tyranny of the urgent is always the sermon. And I generally don't think of much of anything else. And I've had to say uh, to folks, uh, as I approach today, it's the message that's the thing. And I trust that as we look ahead to the future, that'll be true no matter who's standing behind the pulpit, uh, that it's the message that's the thing. It's, uh, we want to hear from God, uh, and we're going to continue uh, to, to desire to do that. Uh, this morning we're going to look uh, at the book of Malachi. I'm going to do a little book study in the book of Malachi, uh, tell you a little bit about our trip uh, to Thailand and the process of sharing about uh, Malachi. And as we do this as well, I want to share what God has been impressing upon me for the last two months as I'm about to uh, uh, take on a responsibility that's uh, bigger and scarier than anything I've ever done uh, in my life. It's this phrase by William Carey uh, that has been uh, going back and forth in me for two months now. Uh, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. We'll hear more about that as the sermon goes along. And as I look into the future of this church, that would be my challenge for the church and the challenge for each of us individually, do we believe enough in the awesomeness of God that we're ready to say, my God is a God from whom I can expect great things. And because of that, I'm willing to attempt great things for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look this morning at the message from the book of Malachi, we do see that Malachi the prophet declares boldly and strongly that your name shall be great among the nations. What we're going to see today is that it wasn't great in Israel because people who call themselves your people didn't have the conviction to believe that you truly are the Lord of hosts. They were bored by their worship services. They were half-hearted in their commitment to you. Their families were falling apart. Fathers were estranged from their children and children from their fathers. God, I pray that as we look at the message today, it'll be a sobering message to us. Because like the people in Malachi's day, we too are orthodox in theology. Uh, but we can always question whether our heart is, is always where it needs to be. So examine our hearts in this service, mine included. Enable us to see what it is that you want us to see. And then, Father, we pray that as a result of the teaching of your word, that you'll motivate us to live more faithfully for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was on June 13, 1793 that William Carey, the shoemaker, set sail from London, England, on his way to India. No one noticed his departure, because there was nothing particularly special about this shoemaker. He had a village school education, but apart from that, nothing that prepared him to go to the mission field. He had no theological training, no particular mission training. In his own words, he had an indistinguishable desire to reach the heathen for Jesus Christ. That was it. He really didn't even have a mission to support him. He kind of went out with the East India Company, but he didn't have a visa to get into India. 
nor had he raised the support necessary to be able to trust that uh, his needs would be cared for when he got to India. He had a few people supporting him, and that was about it. And in the light of that, you can say, well, what would motivate a shoemaker to take his wife Dorothy and his four children to a remote part of the world when he didn't seem ready for that at all? He had been doing uh, devotions in 1792 in the book of Isaiah. He was studying the uh, 54th chapter of the book of Isaiah, verses 2 and 3, where God makes this uh, promise to the nation of Israel uh, that you're going to be able to go to the east and to the west and the nations you will be able to claim as your descendants. So he gave a stirring message as a layman in 1892 and it centered around this theme I mentioned already. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And we can say, well, what can God do with a shoemaker? As we look at the uh, sum total of this uh, shoemaker's life, he spent 40 years in India. During that period of time, he translated the Bible into dozens of Indian dialects and languages. He planted churches throughout the Ganges Delta. He organized a network of schools for Indian children, including girls who normally, at that time at least, were not allowed to study. He was the founder of the Indian Agriculture Society and published essays on the improvement of crops. He was the respected professor at Fort Williams College and brought out critical editions of ancient Hindu writings. He set up a leper hospital and a mission to sailors. He worked to eliminate infanticide, abortion, and sati, which was the ritual burning of widows. He called for a general association of all denominations in India to meet regularly to coordinate a strategy for world evangelization. We can say, so where are the William Careys today? People who in and of themselves can't really claim much. But people who believe that God is an awesome God. And because he's an awesome God, they're ready to say, God, I believe that you can use someone like me to accomplish something stupendous for you. God, give me that kind of faith. Uh, as I mentioned, I want to look at the book of Malachi as we think about this subject uh, today. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, many think this is the theme verse for the book of Malachi. That's where Malachi writes, uh, speaking for God, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now that phrase, the Lord Almighty, appears 24 times in this short little book. Now that ought to be a tip-off to something. Anytime you see a phrase like that repeated as many times as this, obviously uh, the author wants us to catch something. Sometimes this phrase, the Lord Almighty, is translated as the Lord of hosts. Yahweh, or the word translated as Lord, means the God who will be present with us every day. Uh, the word Sabaoth, translated as host, refers to the armies of God, the angels of God, all the forces of God. And what is he saying uh, with that through the people of Israel? He's saying to the people of Israel, I want you to believe that my power and my presence is available to you. And alas, for the people in Malachi's day, they didn't believe it. 
And so as we will look between the lines of the book of Malachi, we see that invariably these people are struggling because they don't really believe in the power and the presence of God. They can't bring themselves to believe that Lord in, indeed is almighty. And we're going to look at some of the reasons why they struggle with that as we ask ourselves, where are we today? Now, first in our summary, the book of Malachi, uh, the reason why people were struggling, believing that the power and the presence of God might be available to them is they had questions about God's love. We see this in chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2 and verse 9. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Uh, in verse 2, that uh, uh, there's a phrase that's translated simply as how here. It's one of seven phrases that we're going to see through this book. Uh, it's always the uh, Hebrew word bama, which is a combination of two words, which means literally in what or how. As this is used in the book of Malachi, G. Campbell Morgan uses this to organize his whole commentary on the book of Malachi. And he uh, insists that as we look at this book, regularly the people of God are objecting and saying, God, you've got this case against us. How can you say this against us? In what ways have we really fouled up? And so seven times they're bringing their objections uh, back to God. So the book of Malachi uh, is a dialogue between God and the people. God bringing his charges against his own people, the people responding, in what way, Lord, have we in any way offended you? And the first offense is God saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. And the people of Israel saying, we don't believe it. We're not buying it. We're not seeing evidence of it. Now, I think we can relate to the people of Israel. I can't imagine there's any one of us here that hasn't at some time in our life raised the question, uh, where is God? He's supposed to be present. His power is supposed to be available. But in the light of my current circumstances or reflecting on my last series of prayer requests that haven't been answered, how can I believe that God really loves me when I see no evidence of the power of the presence of God in my life? Perhaps you can relate to that today. If I can refer to one of my great missionary heroes, Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary to Burma. In 1824... Or, excuse me, 1824. On October 24th, 1829, uh, 17 years as a missionary to Burma, he wrote this uh, in a letter to his wife's two sisters, Abigail and Mary. Have either of you learned the art of real communion with God? And can you teach me the first principles? God, to me, is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Can you believe a missionary veteran of 17 years will make a statement like that? Well, we look at his life. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. He went to the mission field in 1812, um, one day after he was married to his wife, Nancy. In 1815, their oldest child, Roger William Judson, was born. In 1816, at the age of eight months, Roger died. In 1818, six months into his missionary service, they saw their first convert. It was many years before they would see another one. In 1819, they struggled with their first missionary, and that uh, invariably is a challenge in ministry, struggling with people who are in ministry with you. In 1824, he was arrested as a spy. In 1825, his little baby girl Maria was born on January 26th. In December 31st, he was released from prison. In 1826... 
His wife, Nancy, died at 36 years of age. In 1827, Maria Elizabeth Buttersworth Judson died at two years and three months. He wrote the letter to Nancy's sisters as he had gone off into the jungle, still mourning the death of his wife and his baby girl. Uh, he wrote this, uh, this statement saying, Have either of you experienced uh, the first art of the communion with God? God, to me, is the great unknown. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I can identify with that. I think for all of us, there are times in our lives when we may reach a point of frustration and say, God, I don't get what's going on. I wish I had your perspective. And like Job, we want to say, God, why don't you show up here and explain all this to me? But God doesn't show up. And so we can be frustrated. But the uh, rest of Judson's story is recorded in 1850. He's now 62 years old. I was reading his uh, book to the Golden Shore. It's one of the best missions books I've read, if I can recommend one more book before I leave. Uh, wonderful book. On, uh, on the, one of the last pages, I, he makes this statement. I never prayed sincerely or earnestly for anything, but somehow, in some shape, probably the last I should have devised, it came. And it, I've always had so little faith. May God forgive me while he condescends to use me as his instrument and wiped out the sin of unbelief from my heart. By the time that Judson writes this statement, not only has his first wife died uh, in Burma, also his second wife has died. Not only does he have uh, gravesides for two of his children, they're, they're uh, in the neighborhood of seven of his children that have died up to this point as he is serving God. And we look at this and say, well, how can he say that? How can he say there hasn't been a single prayer request that I prayed, yet that somehow, some way, God has answered it to accomplish his purpose? Well, you better have a firm handle on what God's purpose is, if you're going to say that. And obviously, it's not God's purpose for all of us to live here forever. We all are going to die someday. And Judson did take uh, consolation in the fact that he knew that his wives were in heaven with Jesus, as was his children. And he reaffirmed the fact that he was here for one reason and one reason only to reach those heathen who didn't know Jesus Christ. And he committed himself to that. I came across an interview with uh, Paul Bradshaw of uh, People uh, and Rick Warren. Uh, Paul asked uh, Rick this question, what's the purpose of life? And Rick Warren answered and said, in a nutshell, life is preparation for eternity. We were made to last forever, and God wants us to be with him in heaven. One day my heart is going to stop, and that will be the end of my body, but not the end of me. I may live 60 to 100 years on earth, but I'm going to spend trillions of years in eternity. This is the warm-up act, the dress rehearsal. God wants us to practice on earth what we'll do forever in eternity. We are made by God and for God, and until you figure that out, life isn't going to make any sense. Life is a series of problems. You're in one now. You're just coming out of one, or you're getting ready to go into another one. The reason for this is God is more interested in your character than your comfort. God is more interested in making your life holy than he is in making your life happy. We can be reasonably happy on earth, but that's not the goal of life. The goal is to grow in character, in Christ's likeness. And so Judson, by the end of his life, could say, I got that straight. And that's why I can say not one single prayer that I've ever prayed hasn't been answered some way, somehow, so that God's glory and kingdom can be advanced. The uh, first week, uh, Paul Snuffer and myself and uh, Paul Beerhouse, the wizard, 
Uh, he did magic uh, while we were there and wowed the crowd. I said I wasn't going to tell you this when I came back. He was the superstar, I'm almost ashamed to say, on this trip. Uh, he was doing magic everywhere. Kids were lining up. We went to one village, and uh, one of the church leaders said, Boy, if we could just have Paul Snuffer here all the time, we could probably reach this whole village for Christ because the whole village would come out just to hear you know, Paul Snuffer do his, uh, uh, his magic. Well, anyway, we're up on, or Paul Snuffer, Paul Beerhouse, whatever that guy is up there. You, know, you, you be with guys, and they smell bad. You just lose your sense of awareness after a week or so. But uh, in, in, uh, in any case, as we we're at the uh, Burmese border, doing training uh, with these Burmese pastors. These are pastors that uh, would take two, three days to get to public transportation so they could come to the place where we did our training for a week. And then every night they had to go across the border. I never did quite figure that out because they weren't allowed to sleep in Thailand, so they had to go across the border and sleep in Burma and then come back across the border again for the, uh, for the training. Uh, so I asked them one day, have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? Oh, yeah, we just had a celebration for Adoniram Judson just a couple of weeks ago. So then I said this, do you happen to know how many churches today are in Burma that are attributed to the work in the ministry of Adoniram Judson? Oh, yeah, we know there are at least 4,000 churches today in Burma that can be directly attributed uh, to the life and the ministry of Adoniram Judson. And there are a minimum of one million believers in Jesus Christ today because Adoniram Judson went to the mission field and he kept his purpose clear. Expect great things from God and attempt great things uh, for God. But people struggled because they weren't sure God loved them. Uh, in chapter 1, 6 through chapter 2 and verse 9, that led to uh, an inevitable conclusion. If we're not sure God loves us, probably worship is going to be boring and useless. In uh, verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, people with a dead faith give God their second best. Why should we be wanting to give God the... Uh, what's sacrificial, we don't think God has done anything for us. That, that's understandable. People with a dead faith are bored with their worship and they see it useless. If we don't see the power of presence in our personal life, why should we come to church and expect to sense the power of the presence of God here or any place else for that matter? So uh, these were people who wanted to study the Bible. They could have attended the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's just worship was kind of a bore uh, to them. In chapter 2, 1 through 3, we find out that the ministers in Israel didn't want to give God glory. And then verses 4 through 9, they didn't want to carefully uh, teach God's word. Now, I, I am concerned. I've said this uh, uh, in the past. I'm concerned uh, for um, a future of evangelicalism. Uh, if I can give one final challenge, it's, it's hold to the word of God. And you say, well, George, why are you worried? Well, there is a type of neo-orthodoxy. And you say, all right, George. And these guys did this to me this last week because I was talking to the Burmese pastors about Rolls Royces and Mercedes. I mean, they didn't have a car and a variety of other things. But, but uh, I mean, what's neo-orthodoxy? Uh, neo-orthodoxy is the conviction that we don't have to worry about the word of God being the word of God. Just open up the Bible and you know, just whatever it says, whatever it says to you, whatever it says to me, whatever it says to anybody else, we don't need to worry about the Word of God being the truth of God. Uh, it's just we'll experience something when we open it. And that doesn't sound all bad, at least to a point. We want to experience Jesus when we open the Word of God. But if it's no longer God's truth, well, then anybody can read anything they want into the Bible. And that's happening in evangelicalism today. There are evangelical leaders that are saying exactly that uh, today. 
Uh, so um, we need to be careful uh, about what's happening, even within our, uh, our own camp. Well, one of the things that was uh, challenging uh, to me personally as uh, we were up uh, at the Burmese border, we were talking to these uh, Burmese pastors, and you, know, you find yourself in, in an element that is very unfamiliar uh, and awkward. I can say for me, I was in an unfamiliar uh, uh, area because... Talking to Burmese pastors, I want to quote books because I always like to quote books, right? Um, And I was uh, discouraged by one of my translators, George, don't mention any books. Uh, Somebody can say, well, praise God, maybe he's finally getting the message about mentioning books. Uh, But the reason why I was advised not to mention any books uh, is that I was told in the Burmese language they have two books. They've got the Bible and they've got a hymnal and that's it. They have no other uh, Christian literature at all. Now, maybe in the future, they will have Paul Snuffer's notes. He left about 150 pages of notes um, that uh, they're going to translate into Burmese. So there might be, uh, in the Burmese church, you'll see three volumes you know, on every pastor's shelf. The Bible, the hymnal, and Paul Snuffer's notes uh, that, uh, that, they, uh, that they will have, which will be you know, kind, of a, kind of a cool deal. Uh, as um, we were talking about what is it that motivates these Burmese pastors, again, I was humbled. Uh, in the, uh, since uh, 2003, there have been uh, a number of conversions, a number of baptisms. There are two, three pastors that have seen uh, 211 people baptized in their churches. But uh, Lloyd Childs, missionary that we've supported for years in this church, was a little concerned about a couple of the pastors who didn't seem to have glowing numbers of God doing something significant. So he started asking questions. What's going on in your congregations? And what he discovered is in the Myanmar region of Burma. Now, now I know everything Burmese because I was there for a week. I, I know it all. But there's a little tip in Burma that comes down the, the corner. It's this one, one little thin strip that runs along the side of, of Thailand. If you can picture that, if you know where Burma and Thailand is in, in your world map. Uh, in that area, Burmese pastors are being persecuted. And part of the reason why they're not seeing as many baptisms uh, is that soldiers are going to that region of the Myanmar uh, part of uh, Burma, uh, and they are requiring Christians to declare that they are Buddhist. If they don't declare that they are Buddhist, they will be persecuted. And if they come across Burmese pastors, those Burmese pastors will be persecuted and they might be killed. So kind of hard, you know, to boast about all your baptisms uh, when you're just trying to survive and uh, Christians are uh, being told you've uh, got to identify yourself as a Buddhist or you might lose your life. And you hear those kinds of stories from these humble, sincere men and women of faith. And you say, and they're still going back there. They're still going back there to preach and to teach, to take Paul Snuffer's notes uh, and the Holy Bible and the hymnal. And they're going to declare the glory of God because What else can they do? If you're going to be living for eternity, you want to make a difference for Jesus somehow. And if it costs you something, so be it. And there's some folks for whom the cost is much, much greater. But the people of Israel, they didn't see it. Faith was a bore. They were just interested and distracted by what they were seeing, which leads to the second major problem that we see in this book of Malachi. It's detailed for us in chapter 2. And verses 10 through 16, when we question if the Lord is almighty, well, we can probably see it in our families. And in a case of the people of Israel in Malachi's day, 
Christians were marrying unbelievers and marriages uh, were falling apart. Now, we've got to be careful. I have to be careful, you know, when I uh, say what I'm about to say next. I've already talked about William Carey. He's my hero for the phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things uh, for God. But William Carey himself was divorced. In the latter part of his life, his wife left him. He didn't ask her to leave. He didn't uh, try to ruin the marriage, uh, depending on who you talk to. Some people say his wife was insane. Um, she was abusive. But in any case, she left him. John Wesley, another one of my heroes, uh, also went through a divorce. His wife left him. Now, what that tells me is that we can have a great faith for God. We can, with William Carey, be expecting great things from God. And with that, attempting great things for God, our marriage can still fall apart. So I, I don't want anyone to feel like I am standing in judgment over someone if a marriage has fallen apart. Uh, you can have a wonderful faith in Jesus and still see your marriage fall apart. I mean, that's just, that's just the truth. But the other side of this is, if God is powerfully present, if we believe uh, that he is the Lord of hosts, well, then we've got to ask, where is the evidence of the power of God in families in our church? We ought to be able to say, uh, in that area that matters most to all of us, there should be evidence of God working, maybe not in every single marriage, but in most. There ought to be something we've got to say. Except God hates divorce. One of the exciting uh, things uh, for me during the time you know, that I was in Thailand, I got an email from Focus on the Family. Uh, they have uh, scheduled me uh, for an interview on James Dobson's program uh, to tell the story of what God has been doing in this church for the last 13 years as God has been saving marriages. I, I think many of you are aware of this. I heard this uh, just a couple of weeks ago again. Uh, we have some new people that started attending this church because they heard this is the church that saves marriages. And I'm excited about that. Uh, one of the things that I'm realizing in the new opportunity that God has for me uh, is that marriages are in trouble around the world. And uh, to the extent that I can share some of what we've seen God do here over the last 13 years with people in other parts of the world, uh, that's going to create opportunities uh, for evangelism as well. Another thing that's, uh, uh, that's happened, some of you may uh, be aware of, I've just completed a training manual uh, for a, a variety of churches. I'm going to be heading off to Knoxville, Tennessee in August to do some uh, training in a Southern Baptist church in, uh, in Knoxville. So if some of you always wonder, what exactly is it that we do in this church? Uh, I've got a 30-some page training manual that explains what we do and how we do it, and I'm, I'm praying that God will use that uh, to share the story of what we've seen God do in this church to help uh, churches here in America and wherever else uh, begin to see there's no reason why we can't expect in the church of Jesus Christ to see the power of God unleashed in families and be able to have churches around the world be able to say, this is the place where marriages are saved because our God is the Lord of hosts. We can expect great things uh, from him. Well, hastening to the last series of questions in the book of Malachi, they had to do with uh, making sacrificial gifts to God. If the Lord is not almighty, we're going to see no reason for us to tithe. And why is that? Well, one, chapter two, verse 17, we question the justice of God. We don't think that God is in any way significantly fair. And the reason why we might do that is we really don't think uh, that the Lord is coming or we don't see any evidence of God being active uh, in our midst in any uh, uh, specific way. 
I um, would like to ask our Thailand team, at least uh, you three guys, uh, to come on up at uh, this time. I've asked Joan and Paul uh, to share uh, briefly what we saw God do uh, as there was evidence of the power of God uh, among the folks. Joan is going to share first about her experience week one, and then Paul's going to talk about Paul. Judy and I had the privilege of going to Chiang Mai while the fellows were up on the Burmese border. It was 99 degrees and the humidity uh, made my hair very curly. Uh, and we taught at the, Burmese, at the um, Institute, Bible Institute. We had 65 students, and then we had 15 uh, Lahu women that were there. And the man's, men sat on one side. They have their black pants and white shirts. Look very nice. And then the women sit on the other side with their black skirts and white tops. And um, one of the things that um, was so neat, they have only had their language written down for less than 30 years. They've had the word of God for less than 20 years. So when you ask, what is the most precious thing to you? They would say the word of God. They would never give up the word of God. So Judy had them during one of her times, um, read um, Judges chapter 13. Because of the reverence that they had for the word of God, they stood on their feet and read for 20 minutes in unison God's word. That was an incredible experience. And then, It took a lot longer to read in Lahu than it did in English. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't have words for responsibility and things like that, so they have to describe a whole situation in order for us to get there. But it was neat. Oh. That was, that was kind of fun. Then um, I did a, a lesson on spiritual gifts, and we looked at Deborah and Jael and looked at um, the gifts of leadership and prophecy and, and talked about spiritual gifts. And then later, uh, at the end, our translator, Idacom, uh, divided them into groups. And so he mixed up the groups so they had the men, the women, and the Lahu women together in different groups. And, working, and their uh, assignment was... You are to tell what your spiritual gift is and how you are going to strengthen the church. And so after they had worked on that for a while, they came up and they reported. And one of the slides um, had the, the list. And um, the thing that um, struck me, uh, they would read the name of the individual. That individual would stand. And then um, the leader of the group would say, and their spiritual gift is this. This is how they'll strengthen the church. The Lahu women the older women who have been working in the fields, taking care of their children, who have been doing uh, ministry in churches, this is the first time they've ever been recognized. They would stand up. They were so shy. They would be looking around, and everybody would applaud for them. And it was so incredible that these women were recognized as being part of the church and part of um, strengthening the church. And I want to thank you so much for praying for us. Um, We've had a tremendous time, and it was a neat time to be there. Maybe a, I've asked Dr. Snuffer uh, if he would share a little bit about a layman and a layman's work in Thailand. Yes, I uh, got a doctoral degree while I was there. Uh, I was intro- introduced, along with George, uh, Dr. Gord- George Kenworthy and Dr. Paul Snuffer. So I told George mine was a lot easier to get. Uh, <laughs> Got in a Cracker Jack box. Uh, but uh, we, had a, we had just a delightful time. I'll, I'll just tell you, uh, when we were up on the Burmese border, uh, Judy and I went early to get over jet lag because uh, 
we had teaching responsibilities, uh, at least I did on Monday. And Monday, uh, you, you got to remember that these, these church planters and pastors are from very remote areas. And uh, they, they were very stoic all day long. Uh, Lloyd uh, Childs taught all morning some principles of church planting. And then I began and took the whole afternoon. And uh, I said to George and Paul, who arrived then uh, Monday afternoon, that, uh, uh, that you know, we've we got to get these people loosened up. And I don't know if we're ever going to really make a connection. Well, then Paul uh, started out the next morning with his, uh, his magic tricks. And that was the, that was the key of the whole thing. Uh, we told him we would deny this when we got back to the States. But uh, uh, he really was able to just loosen these people up. He showed them how to do some of these tricks. And all of them had just tremendous uh, uh, biblical illustrations along with them that he had well thought through. And uh, it, was, it was really great. And they, they just then loosened up. By the end of the week, uh, they all wanted to have their picture taken with us, and it was just that connection was made. But uh, it, it was a it was a really a, a nice experience. Then, when we on the weekend we went back into the very remote uh, villages in Thailand, and we just pulled off the highway in one of these little uh, villages, and Paul pulled out some of his little uh, tricks, and in two minutes he had a big ring of children around him. And I think the adults would have been there, too, if they had known what was going on. But uh, uh, Paul had a tremendous uh, ministry, too. Uh, but uh, what a delightful time. And we felt like uh, this ministry was so strategic because we were not just impacting uh, a congregation, but we were impacting uh uh, literally uh, almost a whole nation by uh, these these men and women that we were uh, training during these two weeks. Uh, George and I taught uh, all the major Bible themes, uh, theological themes, uh, and, uh, and uh, we did that uh, up north uh, by the border, and then we did it at the training center also. But uh, uh, it was just so fulfilling for us. I... I'd get done uh, speaking, I'd go back to George and say, George, the ministry shouldn't be this much fun. But we had a great time. Thank you. It's great to be with people who expect God to show up and then aren't surprised when, uh, when he does. As I mentioned earlier, when... Uh, especially for someone who's a bibliophile uh, like myself, uh, to be among people who have the presence and the power of God and they don't have books. Uh, I would rather have the presence and the power of God. Uh, we were their books. That was kind of a sobering thought. Uh, you know, if people like us don't come and teach them, uh, they have no other way of, of knowing. So uh, anyway, continue to pray uh, for these uh, Burmese pastors. So, so they weren't thinking about the coming of the Lord, didn't see any evidence of that. Uh, going back to the outline, if that's the case, well, why should we want to serve God with money? Uh, uh, chapter 3, 7 through 10, we see they were robbing God, didn't know it. Uh, and then three, eleven through 12, there's this principle, if you obey God, God will bless you. Now that we see that throughout Scripture, if there's a conviction 
that I want to invest myself for God's kingdom. We're not talking about getting rich in business here because James makes it clear uh, that you can say, I'm going to start a business in another city and you have no guarantee uh, that you're going to make any money in that business. But if I'm about God's business and I'm praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's, that's my prayer, well, then I should be of an expectation. That's at the center of God's will. And if I am doing that, well, then I should expect that God is going to bless me. But they weren't seeing evidence of that either. And because of that, there were some inevitable results we read about in chapter 3, 13 through 4, 5. They thought it was vain to serve God. They didn't see there was any difference between the righteous and the wicked. Chapter 4, 1 through 3. And they didn't believe that God was going to do anything to turn the hearts of fathers to their children or the hearts of children uh, to their fathers. So you can summarize all that and say they had no expectations at all because their God was not the Lord of hosts. I've had a couple months now to uh, reflect upon uh, this new opportunity before me. It's even hard to say the title, Director of Proclamation Evangelism Initiatives. I, I see that title and I've said on a number of occasions, what in the world does that mean? Uh, what that means is that I will uh, sit on the leadership team of the international mission and be responsible for any kind of group evangelism that happens worldwide in the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, that's That'll be my uh, my job. So uh, trying to develop things uh, through TV and radio. Uh, obviously, you know, preaching is still what we do. It's what Jesus did in the marketplace. It's what Paul did in the marketplace. You know, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, they weren't preaching in churches and synagogues. They're out in the marketplace uh, uh, preaching and teaching. So the extent to which we can help people uh, become more effective in the marketplace sharing about Jesus, that's, you know, what uh, we will be doing. Uh, also, since families are in trouble around the world, I'm expecting that there's going to be an opportunity uh, to speak about what we've seen God do here at this church and what we've seen God do in other churches uh, to, uh, to save marriages. And for those of you who are familiar with the book Marriage Makeover, the last chapter is about how to come to Christ. And the uh, method that we use here is all about the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that ought to be something, too, uh, that will help us in uh, figuring out how to do some things and reaching some folks. I'm responsible for raising up a team, a team of folks, mostly uh, um, non-theologians, because many of you have got skill sets that are far more effective to do the kinds of things that need to be done uh, than people who have graduated from seminary. So um, we'll be looking for individuals to do the kind of thing that John Carlson does here in this church, a drama video uh, specialist. Some of you heard me say, I would love to take our church to India I'm going to be going to India in February and have an opportunity to speak to groups of 60 to 100,000 in uh, in India. I would love to take what we did at Easter, uh, you know, do that in India and then see what God could do. I just think that would be a a fantastic opportunity. So somebody who can do some drama arts things uh, around the world. We're hoping to find somebody like that. We're looking for someone who can be an executive director uh, for, you know, global evangelism initiatives, uh, a variety of other folks. I've had a number of folks from our church uh, that have come up and said, we want to be a part of the team, not just, you know, to hear about what you're doing. We want to do something with you. Uh, so uh, some of you know Greg Landrum in our church. He works with Dow Chemical and he's a marketing specialist. He knows I'm not. So he has uh, offered his expertise to help me with some marketing kinds of things. I've had a couple of lawyers. Uh, Debbie Headland's a judge in our church. She said she'd like to travel and maybe uh, address some people in the uh, medical, or medical legal community, uh, as well as Sandy Gilbert. She was a criminal attorney. When I was in Thailand, I was meeting with uh, 
uh, some uh, key ministry leaders. There are a lot of uh, mission agencies uh, that are located in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And I said to them, so if if I were to bring a group of lawyers here, like a judge and a criminal attorney, would that open up any doors for you with legal officials, mayors, other kinds? of?" And he said, you kidding me? You know, that'd be fantastic. So, I mean, that's that's one of the things we're uh, we're talking about doing. Kevin Tappany uh, is a was a pitcher. He's he's a. One who's going to be a part of helping me think through uh, some things with the book uh, and also what we're trying to accomplish. Paul Ridgway, in my opinion, is the best personal evangelist I've ever known. And his job is getting big groups together, you know, like with the Pro Bowl, the Super Bowl. And uh, Paul is going to be a part of the team helping us uh, uh, do uh, whatever. Paul Beerhouse with his magic. Uh, I've got even greater ideas of what Paul can do in various places as just do magic in the marketplace, let people gather around, hope to have some opportunity to, uh, to talk about Christ that way. So, I mean, I'm very much at the infancy in my own thinking with this. A couple things are clear to me. One is evangelism is a process. I, and I still believe what you've heard me say over the years is true, that there's presence evangelism. That is offering a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, helping people uh, with an AIDS uh, deal or helping uh, people with something that meets a physical need. That's evangelism still to me. And then there's proclamation evangelism. That is, you're struggling with your temper, you're struggling with depression. The Bible has something to say about that. Or you're struggling with your marriage. You don't need to know Christ to see how the Bible can be practical to you in helping you face a, a problem. That's proclamation evangelism. And then persuasion evangelism is telling people how they can be born again. And it'll be all of that uh, that'll be a part of what we're doing. Uh, one thing that has changed since the last time I shared about this uh, is that now I've talked to uh, leaders in the denomination and they said instead of just being uh, the leader of proclamation evangelism initiatives for the mission, uh, they want me to be the leader for the denomination. So it'll be here in America uh, as well. I don't even know what that means. There's a part of me. I, I see this phrase, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I look at that phrase. It still motivates me. I look at this job before me and there are days it scares me to death. I'm thinking, who am I to think that I can step into this kind of a position uh, and do anything for Jesus. And what I keep coming back to is what William Carey said. Well, it can't be about me. If God can use a shoemaker to reach the country of India, God can use you and God can use me to accomplish something great among the nations. I'm counting on that because I know myself well enough to know my own inadequacies, my own shortcomings, the difficulties that I, I face uh, naturally. So I'm expecting that God is who he says he is, and I'm expecting that God is going to show up in some uh, powerful ways. And uh, you can also expect that I'm going to be inviting a bunch of you. I've asked Kevin Lakin to come to India with me. Don't you think kind of cool you know, for me to preach and Kevin to be George Beverly Shea? He, he always gets mad at me when I say that, but... I'm, uh, I'm hoping that maybe Kevin will get a chance to go and sing uh, as uh, I get a chance to preach. I think we have wonderful talents in this church uh, that can be used to reach the nations for Jesus Christ. And that's my, my hope and prayer. Let me uh, conclude by saying my prayer for all of you individually and for this church uh, is that as we look ahead to the future, we can be confident not because of who we are individually, are confident because of who we think we are as a church, because the truth is there's nothing special about us individually, and in the flesh, nothing particularly special about the church. But we do serve an awesome Jesus. So expect great things from him. And I know we'll see God do great things here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for its relevancy to all of life. And God, as you've continued to challenge me with the conviction that I need to be expecting great things from you, and then with that, be prepared to attempt some great things for you. On the first half of that, it's easy enough for me because I do expect great things for you. Where I stumble and where I come up short is wondering if you can use somebody like me to accomplish anything all that worthwhile for you. God, forgive me for my lack of faith. And I pray that for us in this church, that there wouldn't be a single one of us who thinks so little of you, that we don't believe that you can use us in all of our weaknesses and all of our frailties to accomplish something significant for you. When you taught us uh, the last couple of weeks how you are using Burmese pastors and laymen who have very little in the way of education, but a great deal in the way of heart and conviction and faith in you. When you can use them, God, we know that you can use any one of us. Uh, So, Father, I pray for this church, uh, that the church and everyone in it uh, may, as we look into the future, be looking at the future with great optimism, excitement, uh, because of you and what we expect you to do. Uh, So, God, do your work in us and through us that people around the world might hear the mighty name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for the benediction? And now may our God and Heavenly Father, who's declared through the sending of his Son that he loves you more than you love yourself, continue to convince you that that's true, so much so uh, that because of that, uh, you're going to want to enter into a deeper relationship with him. May he keep you motivated to search his word, to find out more about him. May he keep you committed to reaching out to the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may he continue to convince you that no matter who you are, Uh, No matter what you've accomplished to this point, if you know Jesus, you've got a story to tell. So tell it among the nations.